This is Season 2, Episode 11. The song remains the same. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 11. The song remains the same. Apologies for the delays on this episode. As you'll hear, this episode's a little different in that it's not just me recording myself. It relied on getting some audio from some other people, so it took a little longer to pull together. I'm also using a new mic for this episode, and that's because I got some feedback from my last episode, not invited to the party, from some folks who said, if you listen to it in your car over the speakers, the bass tones were pretty deep and it was a little bit difficult to understand, except they said for the passages where I was reading from old newspaper columns. And as it turns out, those passages were using the microphone I'm using now today. So I thought, let's use it for a whole episode and see how it goes. I'm not really an audio production guy. I do the best I can. I watch videos on YouTube. And my main hope is that these are just listenable. I also took my oldest son to college for the first time uh, in the time since we last spoke, and that, that turned out to be a little bit harder than I thought. I gotta, I gotta admit it to you. Very, very different from when I went to college in 1989. In 1989, I went to a big state school. Uh, at the time, uh, my family had a Volkswagen bus, and my dad and I took the seats out of it so we could put all my stuff in there. Uh, and then my sister decided to come. So my dad and my sister rode in the front of the Volkswagen bus, and he stuck a folding chair in the back for me to sit on for the four-and-a-half-hour drive to Athens, Ohio. No seat belts. That's just how we rolled in the 80s. And then we pulled up in front of my dorm. We unloaded everything onto the sidewalk, and then my dad shook my hand and said good luck and hopped in the van. Uh, I don't even think he went upstairs with me. And... And now that I've dropped my kid off, I can kind of see the advantage of that strategy. I do remember I had picked up a bag and I was walking into the dorm and he stopped the van and he got out and he shouted across the college green, Hey Pete, don't call, just write. (laughs) And all of the parents uh, assembled there had a good laugh about that. Of course, that was back when long distance was a thing and you had to pay more money for a phone call the further away you were from the caller, and I think that's really what he was speaking to there. Ha ha ha, Dad, I never called. But uh, my son is going to a small private school, and it was super organized. We pulled up in front of the dorm, and all of these volunteer kids, upperclassmen, unloaded the car, and they all carried everything up to the room for us. Then there were activities all day. There was a ceremony uh, where the freshman class officially entered the university by walking in through a specific gate. And they're not uh, going to, they're not supposed to walk out of that gate for their four years until they graduate. So there's actually like these paths around either side of the gate. So if you're headed that way, you don't actually walk through it. And I'll tell you, I spent a lot of time thinking like, what am I going to say to him when I give him that handshake and send him off into the world to make his own decisions and his own mistakes? And, you know, for a, for a long time in those situations, dropping off at camp or school, uh, you know, I always say to my kids, be kind, work hard, have fun, which I think is a you know, pretty good strategy for getting through life. But for some reason, it didn't feel right for college. And so... I think I'd settled on be kind, work hard, do right by others, which is a little bit different than being kind, I think. Sometimes when you do right by others, uh, it requires some tough love or things like that. Uh, And then something happened that I'll get into in another episode, which at the very last minute had me editing it and saying to him as I gave him that final hug, be kind, work hard, do right by others, and do right by yourself. 
which of course doesn't roll off the tongue very easily, but I thought it was important that he realized that in all of this kindness and doing right by others, he's also taking care of himself, making sure that his experience is everything that he wants it to be. And then I had it all set. I even had, I had a hacky sack in my pocket. I was going to hand him the hacky sack and send him off to college, which I think is hilarious because uh, kids these days don't know what hacky sacks are. Uh, but I totally forgot to do it. <laughs> Luckily, just, uh, just the other day, he had to stop home to pick up his fancy algebra calculator. And so I, uh, I stuck the hacky sack in his bag then. I hope they're hacky sacking. I do. I think, I think it'd be great if hacky sack came back. Anyway, I am glad to finally have this episode together. There is going to be one more episode in Season 2, and in that episode, I'll tell you a little bit about the plans for the future after that. For now, I hope you can enjoy this episode. I bring some guests on the show to talk about band names and songwriting, and I uh, try to go in search of a song that I heard in a dark club in 1993 on a rainy Thursday night. It's a cool fall day in 1989. I am 18 years old, fresh out of braces and sporting a sweet six-buck mullet. In the past year, I've shot up to six-foot nothing and weigh a wisp and a prayer at 130. I'm a freshman at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, which I would argue has some of the most beautiful fall days you will ever experience in your lifetime, each September, brimming with hope and smelling of possibility. I'm very likely wearing a t-shirt that says, baseball is life in giant letters and the rest is just details in smaller text below. It's a safe bet that cut off jeans and construction boots round out my look. I think of this boy often. I see him in my head walking the red brick trails that streak across the college green, head lowered and hunched slightly forward in that my mom says I have bad posture kind of walk that I still have. And then I think of the people at the tables. There are always tables around this part of campus. Groups and clubs looking for new members. Students signing up on a note sheet to spend an hour sitting on folding chairs in the warm September afternoon. There are also people with agendas to push. Religious, maybe, or political. The student government kids are out trying earnestly to make the rest of the student body care about what they do. And, in 1989, there was a somewhat new addition to the pantheon of college green table causes. Young women working for credit card companies. I rewrote that last sentence a few times because I wasn't sure if I was being sexist or not. I originally wrote, pretty girls, which is likely what I would have said at the time. But that's only because I still thought of myself as a boy, and never really as a young man. And thus, I thought of my fellow female students as girls. Then I tried upper-class women, which felt made up and somehow insulting. So I settled on young women, who were typically juniors and seniors at the school, and, as I remember them at least, always attractive. I never saw dudes at the credit card tables. They must have been there, and I was simply blind to them. They could have been the ones sitting on the folding chairs. Because I remember the upper-class women stood in front of the tables, holding clipboards and catching flies in their webs. But dudes... I just can't remember a single one, though it's more than likely that my brain pruned them away, deciding they're not the data it's interested in keeping. 
Brains are funny that way, because what it is interested in keeping is the memory of that boy I was. A hundred pounds and some change, rail thin and showing off his recently debraced teeth in random maniacal smiles that no one yet had the courtesy to tell him were kind of creepy. And it remembers the young woman with her clipboard, calling to him as he walked past, Hey there! in a sweet voice with just a hint of an alley sheedy rasp to it. I have to describe that hey there to you, at least as my brain remembers it. Because it wasn't just the cordial greeting type of hey there that you throw out to a rando you want to greet. Hey there! Nor was it the I need your attention to warn you of something kind of dangerous hey there. Hey there! Look out for that piano! It was a softer hey there, silkier somehow, a siren-like hey there that the brain of that boy was helpless to resist, a hey there in a tone that shut that brain's logical functions down, turning out the lights in the part of the brain that's responsible for thoughts like, this person doesn't really like you, she's trying to get you to sign up for a credit card so she can get a commission. Stunned for a moment by the hey there, I stopped in my tracks. Come here, she says, again, in a specific kind of way. Definitely not the kind of way I use come here when I'm shouting up the stairs because my kids need to come down and feed the dogs. My frame turns toward her, and my brain is now reduced to shouting basic commands to each knee. Forward, you. That's right. Lift up and down. Okay, you on the other side. Your turn. As I step over to her, to this young woman who also happens to be attractive, at least three years older than me, and blonde, my brain decides to, quote, say something slick, unquote, and then it decides, hey there yourself, is the way to go. But my mouth fails to get the details right, and I open up with, hey there also, which is pretty bad, as I'm sure you're thinking, bad enough to kick my brain's self-deprecating circuits to life. You sound like an idiot, they shout at me as they spring into the conversation. A conversation, by the way, that goes something like this, her... Do you want a Discover card, sweetie? Me. What's a Discover card? Her. You know, you can use it for your books or, you know, concert tickets or on dates. Technically, she hasn't answered my question. She has instead given me a fantasy in which I spend the day reading happily before picking her up for a quick meal and fourth row seats to Def Leppard. All right. All right. Here's your warning. I'm going off on a tangent. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. I'm not sure why, but in the late 80s, and indeed in the decades that came before, there was an odd trend in band naming to choose a name and then guff up the spelling of it. To stick out, I guess, or differentiate. Def Leppard, D-E-F-L-E-P-P-A-R-D, is an obvious example. Motley Crue passed on the serviceable C-R-E-W for the more umlaut-laden C-R-U-E. I like to think Led Zeppelin started this madness when they kicked the A out of lead, which, if nothing else, ensured that no one ever pronounced it Lead Zeppelin. Lead Zeppelin sounds kind of cool, though, a sort of command airship in a steampunk air force. Still, their band name is one whose origin I've always found problematic. The official story is that Keith Moon, the drummer for The Who, heard them play and said their music went over like a Led Zeppelin. And the band heard this and embraced this comment, kicked out the A and lead, and went on to become one of the most influential rock bands of all time. But can we just pump the brakes and head back to Keith Moon here for a second? Who the hell was this guy to think that he can immeasurably improve the idiom to go over like a lead balloon by turning the balloon into a zeppelin? Did people talk like that back then? 
Were Zeppelins culturally relevant in 1968 in ways I don't know about? Because it sounds to me like the kind of lame joke someone might make that people give a polite chuckle to, but really, it's kind of dumb. Even the original, unchanged idiom, lead balloon, feels pretty old-fashioned to me. And it's also a terrible name for a band, the lead balloons. And did Keith Moon walk up to Robert Plant and announce, Your music, sir, shalt goeth over liketh a lead zeppelin. Or did they have some sort of mutual friend between the bands who just couldn't keep his mouth shut after a gig one night? Hey, Robbie, you hear what Keith Moon said about you guys? I'm not proud of it, by the way, but I've been that guy before. I sometimes forget what I am and am not allowed to repeat. It's all a mystery to me. Keep this in mind if you're planning on sharing a secret with me. Now, there's going to be a good deal of talk about band names later in this episode. But before we get back to 18-year-old me, standing on the precipice of having credit and smiling maniacally at random moments, I want to share my favorite example of the change the spelling band name move which is a fictional one, sure, but it kind of lays the absurdity of the practice bare. It happens in the film That Thing You Do, a Tom Hanks written and directed film from 1996 that tells the story of a one-hit wonder band from Erie, Pennsylvania. In an almost tossed-aside joke, the band names themselves The Wonders, but at the lead singer's behest, they spell it one, like the number one, O-N-E-D-E-R-S. Inevitably, at their first gig, they're introduced as the O'Neaters. The O'Neaters, it cracks me up every time. Of course, there were no O'Neaters yet in 1989 when I was standing on the college green daydreaming about the fascinating life that I would lead once I had something called a Discover Card which an attractive young woman seemed pretty convinced that I needed, and that she could get for me. So I signed up, and to be honest, I didn't think much of it until the card arrived in the mail, a thick envelope showing up in the little mailbox on the first floor of my dorm. The thickness was from all these folded-up papers explaining things like terms and conditions, which I immediately cast aside for the silvery plastic card which sparkled at me like an enchanted object. I should say that I had a dim idea of how credit cards worked. I knew you could buy stuff with them and pay it back later. I'd even go so far as to say I probably knew that they sent you a bill every month. But 18-year-old me very likely dismissed this as mere hopeful eagerness on their part. There's no way somebody could be expected to pay money every single month, right? That's just ridiculous. I want to tell you a few other things about going to college in 1989, by the way. The first of which is that there was an 80% chance that either you or your new roommate brought a typewriter to school with them. Your high school teachers probably told you for four years that you would have to type your papers in college. You might have even taken typing as a class in high school. At my college, if you didn't have a typewriter, you could rent one in the student union for, and I am not making this up, two cents a minute. Now, personal computers were a thing in 1989. A pretty new thing, but still. These were large and bulky PCs that ran some form of DOS or smaller, 
beige encased Max that had a mouse and came with a program called Print Shop that you could use to print out your own greeting cards and feel very futuristic about the whole deal. Computer printers were dot matrix, which was a kind of fuzzy printing method in which each letter was composed of tons of tiny dots, and you had to tear off these perforated edges that the printer used to pull your paper through. So while these all were things in the world, they weren't yet affordable enough for students to have their own. No one on my floor had one that I knew of, and the internet, as we know it, hadn't yet made its way into our world. Then, in the basement of Alice Hall, where the English department was, they opened up a Mac lab, and you could bring your own floppy disk, and you could go and use a Mac to type your papers and print them out for, again, not making this up, two cents a page. Then one day, my friend Luke, who lived next door to me in the dorm, showed me a paper he had written, and it was like, it was like real book printing with very dark text and beautifully crisp serifs. I was stunned almost silent until I demanded to know how he had accomplished such a thing, and he told me that the Mac Lab now had something called a laser printer, which, he said, cost 10 cents a page. But look, I think I headed directly there to try it out. This was the first time I was arrested by typeface in my life, and as a creative director now and a small-scale typeface nerd, I remember being blown away by the quality. The laser printer, by the way, was about the size of a Yugo, and it was stationed behind the Mac Lab worker's desk, and you had to get permission to send your document there first. I kissed typewriters goodbye around this time. I tried to do as much writing as I could in the Mac Lab, even on the hot spring and early summer days when the AC failed to keep pace with the heat all of the machines produced. I can't quite describe how unreal it seemed back then to be able to type a sentence on a screen and then play around with its construction for as long as you want until you got it just how you wanted it to be without getting any paper involved until the very last step. Now, I've always been a bit of a night bird, but living on my own in college and left to my own devices, this proclivity just grew and grew. And the Mac Lab closed at 8 p.m., which kind of stunk because I always felt my brain wake up around 11 p.m., ready to crank out some pages. And so my own writing was still scrawled across notebook pages in my painful Charlie Brown handwriting. Handwriting wasn't easy for me growing up. Perhaps I grabbed the pens and pencils with an Aspie's death grip of force, unable to understand how to regulate the pressure or the flow or the formation of letters. I was in second grade, seven years old, studying cursive, when my teacher, Sister Nancy, called me up to her desk and gave me a note in a sealed envelope to take home to my parents. I think I stopped breathing for a moment when she did this. Everybody knew that getting a note sent home meant one thing. Trouble. Big-ass trouble. I can remember the feel and heft and size of the envelope so clearly, and the terror I was feeling. What the heck did I do? I wondered. I remember tearing up as I stood there and taking it back to my desk and lifting the lid and tossing it in and sticking my head in there for a minute to let the tears get out of my eyes. When I resurfaced, all the kids who sat at my table were staring at me. What did you do? Jackie R. asked me. I don't know, I said and sniffed back more tears. It's so easy to forget how fragile kiddos are in first and second grade, how uncertain they are of the world around them, and how tentatively they maneuver within it. When my son, my oldest, was in first grade, the school secretary called me just a few weeks into the school year to tell me that he had forgotten his lunch and he had been in the office crying, and 
That sense of terror shot back through me, and I shouted at her through the phone, Holy shit! Tell him I'm on the way with McDonald's! She very patiently asked me to take a breath and told me that he could eat in the cafeteria because a few years ago, a parent had donated $20 to buy lunches for kids who forgot them, and that money was still kicking around. The reason she wanted to call me, though, was to tell me that my son was upset and that she had given him a hug, which you're not supposed to do, but she thought it made him feel better. I've never been more relieved or thankful for a random hug than I was at that moment, and the next day, I sent my son into school with a handwritten thank you note from me, not my son, for the secretary, and $50 for the forgotten lunch fund. Years later, by the way, the secretary would retire, and in the land of odd coincidences, I would end up buying a piano from her for $50 as she downsized from her home to a condo. I left this note in my book bag for a little while that afternoon, not knowing how to find the right time to bring it up to my parents. I probably should have done it as soon as I got home, ripped the bandage off style, but I didn't. I fretted about it for a few hours, sat silently through dinner, before I worked up the temerity to hand it to my mom while she sat watching television next to my dad, who was, and I know this is cliche, reading the newspaper. It was the Cleveland Press, by the way, which was an afternoon daily paper. That's a pretty old-fashioned sentence right there, but there was a time when big cities had not one, but two or three newspapers vying for your attention. We got both the morning plain dealer and the afternoon press. Why are you crying? My mom asked as I handed it over. What did you do? I don't know, I said, and the tears intensified, which prompted my dad to lower his newspaper. My mom opened the note, read it, frowned, and looked at me and said, Calm down. You're not in trouble. This only made matters worse for me. Whenever my mom told me to calm down, it just wound me up more, because I couldn't. I didn't know how. And that stress of not knowing how to calm down, that just fueled whatever it was I was feeling in the first place. Then she handed the note to my dad, who read it, lowered his eyebrows, then looked up at me and said, Go get me a pen. And a quick aside here, if my handwriting is hard to read, it's clearly been passed down to me from my dad, whose crazy-ass handwriting is unlike anything I have ever seen in my life. He writes with big, thick, strong letters, a curious mixture of print and cursive. His E's and R's look like they're imported from an alien language. It was the Great Depression in America when he was learning to write, so I guess I always assumed he couldn't afford pencils to practice with, and so he ended up with this mishmash of systems. My dad took the pen, flipped the note over, and in his crazy handwriting, scrawled a response in big, loopy letters. Then he put it back in the envelope and said, Give this back to your teacher. So I took it, and I hustled out of there, just in case I was in trouble for something and my parents weren't parsing the original note correctly. Up in my room, door locked behind me, I took the note carefully out of the envelope. I can't remember exactly what Sister Nancy wrote, but in general, she had penned a polite note that said my handwriting was terrible and would my parents mind helping me practice it at home. I remember that last bit because, even in second grade, the idea of my parents helping me with handwriting was... I want to say preposterous, but second grade me probably didn't know that word, so I'll go with unlikely. Highly unlikely. They were pretty hands-off when it came to things like homework and school projects. I turned the note over and spent a few minutes trying to decipher my dad's handwriting. Once it clicked into place, I have never forgotten what he wrote. It was one sentence. No salutation, no greeting, 
no pleasantry, no dear sister Nancy, thank you for your note. Instead, those inky runes read as follows. My son is going to be a doctor, so lighten up. Helmer W. Brown. I was too young to get the all doctors have bad handwriting joke lurking in there. In fact, I didn't get that it was a joke at all. And to be honest, even now at 47, I'm not sure if he was joking so much as finding a smart-ass way to tell the teacher where to stick it. Nice job, Dad. Sister Nancy was a lovely nun. I'd call it an uncomfortable joke at best, the kind that's just a little bit too true or too biting to be funny. And yes, telling this kind of funny-not-funny joke is another thing my dad passed down to me. What I do remember is sitting there on my bed with the note in my hand thinking, I don't want to be a doctor. There was another factor impacting my handwriting during those late nights in the dorm of my freshman year. Beer. Which is something I felt perfectly fine drinking while I worked on my homework. And not in the, I'll have a beer to unwind after a super tough day kind of way. More in the, I'm good and buzzed, so let's get at that poli-sci paper and speak some truth to power. Yeah. If you go away to college when you're 18 and you live in a dorm, I think it's very likely you will make some friends that you will have for the rest of your life. For better or for worse in some cases. If you're a night owl like me, some of these friends might be fellow night birds that you bump into in the study lounge or down at the snack machine on the first floor. One such person was my friend Brady, who is still my friend to this day, mostly for better, but sometimes for worse, who regularly wore a pair of Cincinnati Bengals boxer shorts around as if they were actual shorts, a choice he justified by saying, I sewed up the fly, so now they're shorts. Brady was set up in the study lounge one late night, pecking away at a word processing machine, the likes of which I had never seen before. It was rectangle-shaped, maybe 18 inches wide and 12 inches long, 4 inches high. It had a flip-down keyboard and a glowing, glorious, yellow-orange CRT. A small screen, maybe 3 inches wide and 2 inches tall, where he could see what he was typing. He didn't have to start printing it until everything was done. What is that? I shouted. A WP, he said. You know, a word processor? That's how revolutionary the idea of writing something on a screen before printing it out was back then. We called the machines that did this work processors, as if we just dumped a bunch of words in the top and then set it to blend. Brady's machine, made by Brother, a company that is still around, also had a disk drive, and Brady could save his files on five and a quarter inch floppy disks, of which he had three in different colors. But the thing that seized my attention The reason why I've taken such a detour in this essay is that Brady told me that his machine was last year's model, so he had gotten a great deal on it at only about $400. Now $400 is a lot of money, even today, but especially in 1989. An online tool tells me that $400 in 1989 was akin to about $820 today, for what it's worth. But I didn't think about that. All I thought about was how that's half of what my new Discover card had offered me by way of credit. And the next day, we borrowed a Chevy Malibu from Sean, another new friend I have to this day, mostly for better, but sometimes for worse, and headed to the one shopping mall in Athens, Ohio at that time, where all thoughts of books and concert tickets and dates were cast to the wind, and I plopped down my Discover card and made my first real deal, grown-up purchase, a brother word processor of my own. Here's something you should know if you're going to be a writer for your career. 
you have got to produce a lot of truly awful writing before you get any good at it. I think that's true for everyone. It certainly was for me. And what that WP did was expedite the process. It let me crank out the bad stuff far more quickly and efficiently than ever before. I filled at least a dozen floppy disks that first year. If baseball was indeed life, as my t-shirt posited, I was definitely trading in the details. When I would finish a story or a paper or a poem or an essay, I would load in some paper and hit print, and a typewriter-like mechanism began typing out the paper for me while I smoked a cigarette, something I had just taken to doing, and which very likely had much more to do with my preconceived notion in my head of being a tortured existentialist, and much less about enjoying the actual cigarette, which I found kind of disgusting. It was, though, like giving birth this manner of writing. Once I deemed something good enough to use the precious, inexpensive typewriter tape on, it was like I was a stork dropping off a baby and saying, Good luck in the world there, little guy. Just a heads up, that stork metaphor is going to break down pretty quickly. Because once I had a paper printed and I lit another cigarette, I'd kick back and read it and that fleeting sense of satisfaction would vanish instantly. As soon as it was birthed, I hated it. The worst kind of postpartum depression I could imagine. Something too dark and nefarious, even for an Oprah special. Often, I fired up the WP and dove in on something else, just to cleanse my palate of that awful old drivel that I wrote way back when I was five minutes younger. I think this is more common than we think with creatives. The joy of making a new thing is short-lived as we push on to something else. One of the musicians I'm about to introduce you to told me he never listens to his old albums because he hates them so much. And I nodded and I said, I get that. There's probably 50% of those floppy disks of mine somewhere in the basement of my current home, but I don't want to dig them up and find a way to access those files. The world humbles me enough each week without me having to go and help it out with my early work. And even though my disdain for my own work was immediate, there was something final about printing it out that also let me move on to the next thing. I was not much for rewrites back then, and even to this day, a full-on rewrite is rare for me. Once I had ushered a thing into the world, that was it. It's a thing. My job is done. If it seems weird that I'm over making this point, I get it. But it's because we're about to talk with some musicians and about the art of songwriting and one big difference I see in it. So let's get to it. I met Brian Haig my freshman year because I lived next door to a high school buddy of his. Actually, my friend Luke from before. That's the guy. Brian Haig, I'm 47. I think I'm here to talk about songwriting and rock and roll band names. But I really got to know him my sophomore year when he lived across the hall from me. He had an electric guitar and a four-track tape recorder, and he would sit in his room recording these little four-track, all-instrumental guitar pieces that we all found pretty transcendent. (laughs) 
Across the hall was a dude named Brian Shaffron, possessor of one of the greatest laughs in history. <laughs> Fucking great. Frequent contributor to the user submission sequences in this show. I always wanted to be hypnotized. And when I was in college, the university brought in this hypnotist, bullshit artist guy that got up on stage and there were a couple hundred of us and he attempted to hypnotize the crowd and I so wanted to be hypnotized but just doesn't work. And for a very brief time, a host on the short-lived motorcycle building show, Wrench Against the Machine. Welcome to Wrench Against the Machine. I'm Brian Shaffron, owner of Skidmark Garage in Cleveland, Ohio. All right, are you guys ready to see what you're working with? Oh yeah. Yep. Pull off the tarps. But Chef, as we call him, isn't the second musician you're about to meet, although Chef is a decent singer in his own right. It's his high school friend, Kevin D., a bass player. Uh, Kevin, you want my last name as well? It's up to you. I mean, I'll, I'll leave it that I'll leave that off. Kevin, can we say Kevin D.? Kevin D. is good. Okay. And uh, you want my age? Yeah. I'm 47 for another week. Yeah. Both of you guys are turning 48 later this In the month, next right? two weeks, yeah. Okay. But before I get into the magical litany of band names that these two burn through, I should mention, too, that they are, in this day, two of my closest friends, as well as professional colleagues, with whom I've created some very bodacious stuff for a very happy corporate clients. In fact, it was their band, Delicious, that recorded the theme song for the show, I'm Not Myself. I wanted to talk to them about things like band names and albums they've produced and music they've written together and about something I remember from the very first time they played out on a rainy Thursday night back in 1992 at Ruby Tuesdays in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, before we get into this interview, too, just a quick disclaimer. Uh, I was interviewing these two guys in my garage. It was the first time I had done a garage interview, which I loved. It felt to me like a tip of the hat to the podfather Mark Marin who records WTF in his garage but the garage door was open so you will occasionally hear cars going by and then one of our Chawinis I think it was Thurber he was just going he was inside the house like at the door to the garage just barking up a storm so you're gonna hear him too honestly editing the interview was tough because every few minutes I would be like Johnny come get the dog Yeah. Okay, and uh, so this is my first interview in a garage. It's about forty degrees out, so everybody's bundled up. We have coffee instead of beer. <laughs> uh, just for the listeners, these are two white guys that run between five foot ten and six foot one. I'd guess uh, they are both shaved heads, um, so they have hoodies on, and Hake has a hat and a hoodie, and they both have some graying beard business going on. As is our interview. Yeah. Yes, our, our interviewer. Yes. Yeah, you have more hair, but that, everything else is pretty much the same. I know. We're all starting to look alike. We're basically <laughs> old white guys sitting in a garage in the suburbs. You get the picture. Mm -hmm. Was it at some point during senior year that you started driving to Columbus to play music with Kevin? And how did that work out? Did you have to come up and audition, or what was going on? Did Shaft just say you should be in a band with Kevin? I had heard Brian play, like, I remember this like it was yesterday. It was in his dorm room. He was playing uh, a Steve Howe acoustic. He was uh, playing Mood for, for a Day. Probably Mood for a Day. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, 
he's a pretty badass guitar player. I, I, I did go through a series of guitarist auditions, auditions which um, rough. You know, lots of lots of hair, lots of finger tapping, and um, <laughs> hey, I could do that stuff for sure. And uh, I think uh, what I was looking for at the time was like somebody who wasn't. It was more about writing songs than you know shredding. Okay, I gotcha. So it was just like let's get together, make some music, record some music, see what happens. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so let me. I want to run through some of these band names. <laughs> okay, your first band all name. All these are copyrighted. Now I have these written down, but I don't know if I have them all. So we'll. we'll your first band name was Big Bald Head, mm-hmm. which you both now have, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and um, how long was that your band name? It seemed like it was for a really long time. It was. It probably wasn't because I've got it in the basement somewhere. Lots and lots of back in the day when you'd make flyers. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't on a computer. You'd, yeah, we cut I think stuff, it was five years yeah, right. out and, yeah. and you know paste take, it up. Paste yeah. it on a. I think sheet. it was five years because I started coming up in '93. Did you just pick that name because it was funny? No, it's actually a Laurie Anderson line, who I was a big fan of. Do you mean so, Lonnie Anderson? No, no. Okay, I mean I'm a fan of Lonnie Anderson. Actually, I think I think I think Peter would be a big fan of Laurie Anderson. Mm-hmm. I have written down Wingnut Bob. Mm-hmm. Was that after Big Bald Head, or mm-hmm. during, or it? Was, it wasn't like we had ever really played out as that. We may have played some house parties, our own house parties as Wingnut Bob. Okay. Well, was, we we also didn't we play the no? I guess then there's Hobby <laughs> That was the coffee shop. Okay, uh, and then I have Luke Sky Boogie written down. Yep. And that was a cover band, is that right? Yeah. Did you guys ever play out as Luke Skyboogie? What, once, once, maybe, maybe twice. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we, I feel like we we opened for ourselves okay. as Luke Skyboogie, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like at Barley's Underground. But I, yeah. I feel like we played at uh, Hot Peppers as Luke Skyboogie. Wow. Like a, it was like a one-off show, and it, I don't remember it being very good. Yeah. But uh, I remember playing a lot of those Luke Skyboogie songs. Okay, and then is Delicious next? <gasps> As Delicious, you, you put out your first CD, it was called Hip Replacement, and that has the song that I use as the theme for my podcast yes. on it, I'm Not Myself, mm-hmm. right? So that at the end I always say they're not a defunct band, Delicious. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. Are there any band names I'm forgetting thus far? Well, he did bring up Hoberty Hoy, which is like a, <laughs> it was like our, our coffee shop shows okay which was mo- like it was probably maybe half and half originals half covers and uh yeah i and hobbity hoy is yiddish for what young young, young lad or yeah young like lads yeah so then after delicious you became copas is that right no we were briefly verbal kent oh yeah verbal oh, yeah. kent okay and that was like more of a three-piece. And then from them, Verbal Kent to, to Copass? I am interested in how, how you choose those names and what, when you would decide to change it. Would you be like, we got a show, let's change our name? How we managed to like and was consistently it- have the worst band names in town? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Our band names sucked. They really did. I have gone through the film naming process <laughs> with you guys, so I know what you're like to work with. <laughs> 
Um, but why would you change? That's curious. Why, why would we change band names? Yeah. I mean, from a branding perspective, all you're doing is setting yourself back to, to sure. start. I think it's the... Uh, it's the sort of... It's the equivalent of it's the equivalent of moving furniture in your house. It's like I, I need to feel I need a, a fresh start. I need yeah, to feel differently mindset. about this room. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, and whether it's just like oh we're we we're all creatively now in a different place. I know <clears throat> Kevin cringed earlier and I said evolution, but it, it's almost the evolution of our in, influence. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. It's suddenly, you, you sound very different than who. It's like that band I remember was. us recording. Or doing the finishing touches on like that delicious record, and we were not into that music at all. Did either of you ever suggest a band name that got kind of vetoed, which you thought would be awesome? Oh, for sure. I mean, we had lit, uh, just pages and pages of band names, <laughs> and we did like we'd read them out loud, and you know somebody would hate it. I think it <laughs> was more. <laughs> m- most of the band names were just like the ones that we could agree on hating the least. Yeah, <laughs> really, what it was. I gotcha. <laughs> That's the truth of compromise, right? Yeah. And Copaz, you were arguably for the longest amount of time. Yeah. And I have down here three CDs. Being that we're still a band, so yeah. Yeah. Starboard <laughs> I Rail. Guess we are. <laughs> we, we've never had the official we've, breakup talk. Starboard Rail, Future Radiant Shine, and Teeth Like Cities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, right around Future Radiant Shine was when you guys were on the cover of the Alive, the mm-hmm. local music thing. Yeah. And you went to California, and you played in the Viper Room. Yeah. So you say this is like the pinnacle of your band achievements? I don't know if the California was... Thus the... far. Yes. <laughs> and I don't even know that California was the pinnacle. I felt like there was maybe a couple other shows, local shows that, in my mind, still stand out, like CD release shows. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, but, but if, I... if you're going to boast about anything that has any yeah. name recognition, yes. then yeah, the, yeah, I guess the Playing Viper Playing the Viper or... Room, yeah. It it is it arguable to say at this time you were being talked about by people who love music, probably the most. For sure, yeah. <laughs> so here's my question now. Okay, so that's I'm just on your career and and you guys would. I know you don't like labels, but uh, indie rock, sure, probably as 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 general as we want to get. Okay, uh, how many songs do you think you've written together all told, ballpark? Since 1993. Wow. I don't know. It's actually like 26 years. Yeah. I don't know. A hundred? Probably. It seems low. But I mean, it's not like, well. Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff gets thrown out. Right, right, right. Um, but, so, but really, we're talking about from 93 to 2006. Yeah, that's right. I gotcha. So how does it work when you want to write a song? Just depends. Like, did you go, hey, I got this new song, and then you start playing it, or you're like, let's write a song about this, and then you... I'm just curious about what never, the process is like for you. I don't know that there was ever any themes, um, only because I, we were always music first, Yeah, and then lyrics would come later. Now, that's, at least for me, I know that Kevin sometimes would write words, like he would just get ideas and write words out. Um and then trying to mush it into yeah. a riff or something. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times I felt like we would write, we'd put string a few riffs together and mush mouth over it. You know, blah, 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 yeah. and then you'd start to say words was, you know, like the meter of the words would start to play out and then yeah. you'd start to get that 
and try to write words to it. Right. But. Yeah. And it's uh, it's sometimes super tedious. Like Brian, here's the here's the guitar part. Yeah. And a lot of time, and the drummer would he would lay down a, a as, yeah. was really good at just coming up with a, a good beat that would yeah. just sort of. He was a quick study. Yeah. Again, like and and so. And then there was a lot of time of this part being played over and over and over mm-hmm. and over again while Sean, the other guitar player, would come up with Different something that yeah. made sense with it. Yeah. And yeah, we always talked about like it was more like if you think about drawing, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of sketch it out. And that would be me. I would like sketch out something. And then they would come in with the color and the coolness, essentially. That's. Do, would, would you ever like work on one for a while and just be like, this is going nowhere? Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So if, so if you think you were, you were 100 songs together, how many of them are are still things in the world and how many are lost? Hmm. Do you know what I mean by that? Like obviously the ones that are on the CD yeah. count as things in the world because people have the CDs. Um, so that's like 40 right there, probably. If you think 10 songs of yeah. a CD. And then yeah, so we've got we've got three records as Copaz, one record as Delicious, and then a cassette with four songs on it. Um, so can you guys think of a song that didn't make a CD that like you really liked? Mm-hmm. Which sure. ones? I mean, the I would lo- I would love to like the Big Bald Head stuff. Yeah, I, I wish that we had recorded more of that. Yeah. There's some good stuff there, but then always but like in between the the official bands, yeah. there was times where those lineups were making music that maybe didn't make it to the next round would you guys when you're planning a record have like arguments or disagreements about what's going to make the record and what isn't about what songs would make the record i don't think so i don't think we ever argued about that i think we like we loved recording so it was just and i think with delicious too we tried to just get everything in there and i think you know in hindsight we probably would have maybe picked the best 10 and so we we kind of we yeah. try to just jam as much as we could on there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys know what I'm going to ask about next? Um, is Song names or I, I, titles? I have a pretty good idea. Is it has, has something to do with a, uh, a piece of headwear? It does. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right. So I'll set this up. First of all, so I was telling Brian this yesterday. So one of the reasons I'm not a good musician and maybe not even a good listener to music is i'm so tied up in listening to what the lyrics are (laughs) that's where i'm trying to kind of trace that and derive some meaning and uh so when i go what's that yeah absolutely sure getting garage beers now this is so authentic yeah we're going from our authenticity is just off the charts um that's fine. So whenever I go and see a band, if if they manage to pull me out of my head at some point, that's a huge success, mm. right? Like the music is just it. Like I'm completely beyond thought. I'm just lost in listening to it, yeah. right? And so going back to 1993, I think this is the first time you guys ever played out because I drove up from Athens to watch mm-hmm. at Ruby Tuesdays. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. You were with Chip. Yeah, and uh, the. Guitarist from Watershed opened. He played acoustic, right? Well, yeah, what's his name? Colin? Colin? Colin Gowell. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's weird is I think I had friends from Pittsburgh in for that show, too. Yeah. And so uh, I'm going to tell you everything I remember about that show. 
So it's funny how we all remember certain things from certain shows, right? So, uh, oh, Ke- I know where you're going. Kevin now. was the singer. For the first half of the show, you were wearing a clown suit. You were in this clown suit, <laughs> but not you weren't dressed as a clown. It was just the clown sure. one piece, and you took it that. off. I think at one point. Uh, I think at some point I probably just got so sweaty that I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't take it. Anymore. I think yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> then also you had the hockey helmet. Sure. And this was a hockey helmet with two of those like eight. Eight millimeter movie camera lights. Yeah, it was a it was a plastic floodlights. Yeah, yeah, it was a plastic um, Skate, uh, skateboard helmet. Yeah, like, with the yellow Tron with you know glow in the dark stickers. And uh, <laughs> I yeah, I just screwed in one of those old yeah uh, lighting. And then you would turn it on, and basically it would just flood the audience. Oh, with yeah. light. like yeah. it totally inverted the performer audience <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> well, that's what that's part of what interests me about this idea of lost songs. I'm a writer. I've written hundreds of terrible stories, but they still live, even if only in a plastic tub in my basement, right? Mm-hmm. They're not lost to the world. I do have a box of practice tapes. As do I. Yeah. And show, like show tapes, because we used to, if we could, like if a sound engineer had a board that had some sort of direct in, like yeah, a yeah. boombox or whatever, yeah. we would do that. Just record it. And it was always like the worst thing to do, because then you'd listen, to, listen to it back and it's like, oh, this is horrible. Yeah. We are a terrible band. I mean, I, mean, yeah. I mean, most of it's because like the vocals would just be stark. Yeah, and they weren't way in front, and it's like yeah, this they would is the not effects like the effect loop of the board. Yeah, and the PA itself wasn't it, if it was coming straight out of the board. Yeah, it was just getting your direct signal. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a fair representation yeah. of what yeah. what we heard in the audience. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, Guitarist from Watershed opens, plays an acoustic set. He plays a song called Leslie Let Me, which I thought was really good. Went up and had a conversation with him about it. Mm -hmm. Reaching out to him, hoping to get a copy of it. Hey, this is Pete again, stepping out of this interview for a second. Uh, I did wonder if I could track down this song, Leslie Let Me, by uh, the Guitarist from Watershed. And it took me uh, literally about five minutes. I... I emailed my friend Chip, who's very active in the Columbus music scene. He reached out to Colin from Watershed, and uh, about five minutes later, I had the MP3 in my inbox. So, you know, there's a band that was definitely staying organized. I'm going to play a little bit of it now, uh, and then I'll play the whole thing at the end of the show after the credits. Leslie, let me. Kevin comes out in the, the clown suit. We did the hockey helmet thing, okay? And then you said, our next song is about Harry's hat, which is upon Brian's head. And you pointed, and everybody looked over at Brian, and you were wearing like a pork pie hat. Now, it, this was the pre-hipster era, right? Yes, so, the, so the the pork pie hat at that time really signified our father's generation, yep. mm-hmm. right? 100%. And so this is the song in, in this show where I was just completely taken out of my monkey mind. I mean, it was, just, I, you know, and I was just like, I don't even know what happened. Like, I wouldn't come out of listening to that song thinking this, these guys are awesome. It was just like, what just happened to my brain, right? And so, and all I remember about Harry's Hat now, some 26 years later, is 
I felt like the hat was a signifier of our father's generation. And I, I remember a lyric along the lines of there's so much anger in Harry's hat. And I loved this idea about, like I thought when I listened to it, I'm like, oh, well, his dad must be named Harry. And it's about how our fathers are angry people and this hat is trying to contain it all. <laughs> right. And I just thought that was a, I, I mean, I loved everything about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's, I've asked you guys about this song. A thousand Pro- times. A thousand times yeah. <laughs> over the years, right? What do you guys remember about it? Uh, to me, it was one of the... At that time, it was one of the few songs I sang. So for me, and it was a song that Kevin, for the most part, wrote, I think, the lyrics and everything. So, And to clarify, your dad's name is not Harry. My dad's name is Harry. Oh, it is. Okay. Um, was it actually his hat on Brian's head? I think uh, Yeah, this is going to be really disappointing for you, Pete. It's okay. Like, Brian just declared that I wrote the words for it and I would have not have said that. <laughs> I think I might have written the, the it was a darker song. I felt like I wrote probably maybe wrote some of the riffs. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure it was your lyrics. I mean, it could be. Uh but the 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 only thing I remember about that song is that it had at least two versions. There was pro- the, probably the version that you heard. Yeah. And then it got rewritten. Yeah. Uh, but and I can kind of remember. I can remember the chorus to the rewrite, but I have I have no recollection. Yeah, I, I don't of have any recollection. Original. But here's the thing, and it, and this, it's funny that Kevin says that because if let's say I did write the words, that would be funny. Be only because it was Harry's hat. Yeah, <laughs> and I did wear it, but that was it. Like maybe that was the story. Was yeah. that hey, this hat's pretty cool. Whose hat is it? <laughs> and Kevin would say, "Well, that's Harry's hat." And I think for us, <laughs> yeah, that was like that's enough. enough working title. All right, we've got our. <laughs> let's uh, let's make a song about it. Yeah. Well, I think the reason I keep asking you guys about it over the years is I don't want it to become lost. Mm. You know what I mean? I want to keep it alive somehow. You've done that. Uh, it, it, <laughs> even if it's just my memory of it, that one. But night. here's the thing, Pete. And that you you've challenged me. I I feel like. I want to go look, dig through the tapes, Same. and see if I can find it. So, so here, this is this is the big ask I have here. My ask was, can you take what I remember about the song, and the two of you record a new version of it? Uh, wow! And then we play it on the show. I, I would say, yeah, if we we could find a basement tape of it. Yeah, we could. We but could but easily... you could just take. I'm. I'm it, it's a whole new version, right? Just take what I said. This is what I remember. Use that as your inspiration. Mm, I see. To create the 2019 version of Harry's hat when you guys are, you're no longer 23, you're both 40, about to be 48, mm-hmm. you know, park by hats are in style. <laughs> I probably, well, I don't know if I still have Harry's hat. I, I know I had it for a long time and I actually, I had Kevin's uh, helmet light too for a long time too. But so, I think it, it yeah. may have So you could do, and it's however it's you guys do it, you could bring in whoever you want to do it. You know, I know it's a huge ask, particularly since I just asked you both. You just scored a film for me, and I'm always asking you for favors. But I think it'd be really cool to, like, here's what I remember in 1993. Here's the new version of the show. And then touch base with you guys again just about that, how that process was. I think it'd be fun. Um, it's so much easier now. I mean, I did have a four-track back then, so I guess it, it's always been easy, but even more so now. With to record, yeah. Like, I'm not saying book a studio and record it. <laughs> well, and the, I don't well, have a budget it, here. <laughs> There's no budget. Even more so Those now. Those two high lifes is the budget. <laughs> even more so now, it's like you could just, 
you know, I don't know what Kevin records on, but you can share files. Right. You don't even have to be in the same place anymore. So is that a yes, or do you guys got to think about it? One song? I, I'm down. I'm down, too. Yeah. All right. We'll figure yeah. it out. Nice. Cool. I mean, the biggest challenge will be just tracking down the song, because I don't remember it. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't, like, there's certain songs that I remember from that time yeah. that it pop into my head all the time, but yeah. that one's not one of them. Yeah. But it doesn't. It can be a whole new song named Harry's Hat. Oh, no, it's, it's basically. Gotta, it's got to be. This is Harry's. It's got to be something from that. Original some song. something there, yeah, right. But I, I like this this reprise. You're you're looking back in time to your 23 year old selves to a song you played once that touched one person who has the kind of memory that he can't let it go. <laughs> who interacts with you guys several times a week now and probably at least once a quarter asks about this song. I, I mean, I, this is all just a very sneaky ploy to get Brian and I to collaborate again, which I had vowed not to. <laughs> but I, as you said it up top, the band's still together. You're just no, practicing much less frequently. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for another decade to go by. So, all right. So it's a done deal. The two of you are going to write one song in eight weeks, mm-hmm. inspired by the original Harry's Hat. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that took a little more than eight weeks uh, for them to to do this song. We recorded that interview in May. It's currently the end of August. Uh, I still don't have the song as I'm recording this, but I'm told that I might get it this week. So hopefully we can get this episode out the door. Okay, so we are now post Harry's Hat has been uh, recorded. And my first question is just how did it go making a song together again? Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> it was fun. Uh, it was like putting a putting an old hat on again. It's, yeah. like, it's like putting a well, yeah, what an old an old pair of hats on. Give us a, give me a summary of the process and the approach. Uh, a lot of procrastination on my part. Mm-hmm. I mean, when did we uh, when did we start? When did we do that first interview? It was cold. It was uh, it was May thirty first, and we thought we'd have Harry's head in eight weeks, which would have been end of July. I'd have to say I don't think Kevin and I spent eight weeks together writing the song, if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we probably spent a few hours together, and then some some text and some back and forth with some uh, MP3s, and that was about it. So, but you, you, Hake, you kind of fleshed the song out first, is that right? Yeah, I sketched it out, I guess. A couple parts, smushed them together. So is this where you fade up the the song underneath us trailing off here?
So I want to ask you about a couple of the creative choices in the song. First of all, I noticed that the song is is slower. It's much slower than the original, but is it is was that on purpose or? Pete, we can't. Uh, we're <laughs> we're getting old. We can't play that fast anymore. <laughs> God, you just can't rock anymore. No, it wasn't deliberate. No, uh, it's just just kind of what came out when you start. Did you again start with music or did you start with words? And never words. Never words, words are first. We're not writers, Peter. I gotcha. Now, the, other thing, ask- the other thing, too, is um, we don't really have a, a, a frame of reference since neither of us actually remember how the original went. I gotcha. I gotcha. You can just cut, you can delete that out, Pete. No, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> you, you have a better recollection of the song than we do. But do you recall it being faster than this one? No, I really don't. I, I remember it being kind of a dark song anyway, compared to what we were playing at the time, which I was gotcha. pretty, pretty funky and goofy. It was more uh, serious, even for Big Bald Head at the time, if I recall. But A bit of a dirge. Dirge. Yep, for sure. Okay, would you be fair now? I just listened to it again before we were coming on here. And so my memory of the original song is you know, Harry's hat was this thing that the singer was reacting to. And in this new song, I would say almost it's fair to say the singer is Harry. Mm. Or has become Harry, maybe. Yeah. He's kind of transitioned into Harry. And so instead of just wondering what the weight of Harry's hat was, he's literally underneath that weight. Maybe, maybe I gotcha. I, mean, I think, I think this person's just grown up, you know, and the the generation, the the parent or the uncle or whoever Harry is, has just set the standard and set the bar, and it's just a little generational. And I don't know, gotcha. just like just like every generation, you, you try to live up to it, but I think you exceed or sometimes you fail miserably. So. Did you did you feel at some point when you're writing it like ah oh, this whole thing's coming together or did it just feel like one of those tasks that your friend Pete asks you to do that he doesn't pay you any money for? <laughs> uh, a little bit of both. Um, I I enjoyed doing the song and I enjoyed hanging out with Kevin and we you know we did uh, get help from our old drummer Nate who uh, recorded drums for this so I think. That that whole process was a lot of fun. He squeezed us in uh, amidst his recording of his 112th record. (laughs) He's very prolific for sure. Do you feel like uh, when you look back at this year and you go, "Well, I got one song done uh, with Hake or with Kevin," does that going to feel like an accomplishment, or is it going to just feel like uh, you had to check the box because I kept bugging you? It's like going to the gym. It's like when you have the thing in front of you. It's like, oh god. but then after you do it, and then while you're doing it, it's like, why did I hate, Why did I sort of drag my feet in doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree with that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was great to it was great to think about, you know, to sit down on my own and and um, work on the parts. And then it was great to get together with Brian and it and and uh, it's like, oh, we've we've done this, this we've done this for a long time. We know how to do this. Yeah. Yeah, but you haven't done it in a long time. True, true. But it's like riding, it's like riding, it's like riding a, it's like riding a ski do. So what? 
and, and I, I think I might have asked this before, but I'm going to ask it again. In both of your lives, did you get to a point where whatever was driving you to make songs for all those years just was no longer as important as the other things in your life? Or did just the, you're like, I'm kind of done with it? No. Well, I can, I'll speak for myself. I, I, there was never a conscious decision like, I don't like this anymore. It was just, you know, I was having a family and stuff like that. So for me, it was just moving away from the sort of rock and roll life, but it was never, I can't, I don't like doing this anymore. I think it was just priorities for me. Yeah. So almost as if the weight of responsibility as represented by Harry's hat (laughs) came down upon you. Not really. How about you, Kev? Uh, So the, the hat's still on the head and the brim has stretched to the floor. I gotcha. <laughs> That's the weight of that hat, man. Yeah. Well, fellas, thank you for doing that. Is there anything else that I you, you want to say about the song that I didn't ask about? Uh, uh, just the thank you, Pete. It's just sort of uh, as, as much as we moan and groan about it, it is nice to... I mean, the only way that <clears throat> any of us can operate anymore is... Um, is with some but, some fa- fake deadline. That's right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we, I do. We, we enjoy being your uh, your uh, your muses. So you guys feel okay about the song? Are you? I, I feel better about it than you do. If that's what you're asking. Yeah. Why don't, why, so we're, yeah, let's ask the let's ask the uh, the interviewer. Why don't you like the the song, Pete? Uh, I I like the song quite a bit. I, mean, I think. Mm. Hake was reacting a little poorly when I said you made some interesting choices, but I think they were, that was the most interesting thing to me was uh, making it more uh, of a slower, a slower song than I remember. And then having the narrator really become Harry, uh, which, which I think was a really cool idea. So Pete, you, I mean, you've been in the writing world for a long time and certainly, and certainly um, uh, around sort of the art world. You don't ever call anything interesting. I mean, it's like, uh, it's, uh, it's going up, it's going up to a band after, uh, terrible and say, looks like you're really having a good time. And I like your pedals. Yeah. No, no, no. I understand. Interesting is what you say. Someone's like, let me read you this poem and it's terrible. And you're like, that's really interesting. interesting. Yeah. But I had listened to the song once when Hake asked me about it. I said, you made some really interesting choices in there that surprised me. I mean, I I thought, Mm. I guess I thought it would be uh, just a more upbeat, like you would remember little riffs from the original and that they would be a little more uh, pressing and faster and upbeat than, than it was. Oh, that we would go, we would, we would just immediately get back into our um, wah, wah slash slap bass (laughs) funk shoes. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I would I would be I would don some clown's outfit. Yeah, yeah. I guess channel, I guess would channel his his Jesus Jones. Yeah, <laughs> I I guess what I I would say this song is very specifically sad, and and whereas the first one was there was sadness to it, but there was a confusion to it, and so you kind of felt for this narrator trying to figure out what the problem with Harry's hat was in this one, he knows what it is, even though he does say at two minutes and 11 seconds in, I don't understand. He goes on to explain what it is. He doesn't understand. And so, uh, 
it, it, it is a very sad song. Lyrically, it's sad, maybe. I don't think musically it's... I've, I've written way sadder songs. You're a sad song, Pete. I Yeah, you are a sad song. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's 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 all I meant by an interesting choice, right? You, ne- you never said choice, but we'll, we'll, we'll argue about this for years to come. That's fine. That's I, have a, fine. I have a question for Brian. You, you have a very <laughs> interesting reaction to my reaction. I have a question for Brian if we have time. I know that we've got to go to an ad here pretty soon. But uh, 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 so you decided not to use any of the words from the original. I did because they they didn't fit in and they were like, I think it was like Harry's hat on a breezy day. I I was trying to figure out how to fit that in. Yeah, they suck the first time around. I do it again. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) I couldn't I couldn't channel my inner my inner 21 year old. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Okay, is there was there anything to the song that you wanted to do that you just didn't do because it was overdue? And I was like, "Hey, are you guys can get the song done." Probably a little funk part, little wah wah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. so well, can I, let me say thank you guys for doing this. I think it's been a super. I was going to say interesting, but I'm going to say compelling mm-hmm. audio experiment to give you a, a bit of a song I remember that's 27 years old and um, have you sort of recreate it. And uh, I'm, I'm more than thrilled with how everything turned out. Did you ever um, go into detail what you, because clearly your memory of the song is way more um, accurate in that you have any memory of it uh, than ours like what what uh like what do you remember about the song Pete you you said it's faster i mean was it sort of that that thing that that thing we were doing back then with uh no so I, again as you know i'm a guy who listens to lyrics and not music which probably isn't the best approach for the music you guys make uh but what I remember about that song being is I understood a narrative that was implied to it. And the narrative was that here's Harry's hat, which was upon Brian's head. And it was the kind of hat, which at that time, very, very much was a signifier of our father's generation. And I remember that line, there's so much anger in Harry's hat. And it was just like, whoa, I totally get that. The the narrator of this song is grappling with understanding why he senses anger or disappointment from some sort of father figure, right? Um, and I just thought that was a super interesting way that you you took that feeling and put it into an object and made Harry's hat sort of metaphorical of that. And then I think Brian carried that along in. He's like, okay, it's 25 years later. The same guy is now singing a song about Harry's hat, but he's been wearing Harry's hat on his head and he's weighed down by it and, you know, um, there's part of him that still doesn't understand and, and he doesn't understand why I think everything's so hard for him, but that's how life is. Sometimes you're like, why is everything so fucking hard? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I thought you'd love that. I, I do love that. It's just that since it's such a sad song, it doesn't give me any hope that some, you know, shit's going to turn around one day. <laughs> Well, we'll have to we'll have to re- reprise Harry's hat at, in the retirement home version. That's right. In twenty seven years, I'll uh, I'll have <laughs> yeah. you guys come over to yeah. my garage. You thought this version was slow. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. 
I'm curious to hear what the actual podcast is about this particular episode. Yeah, it's going to your spin is going to be, I'm sure it'll be really interesting. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah. It's going to be very interesting. I'm known for my interesting shows. It'll be interesting. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, strangers like it when you go up and tell them you have a podcast and then when you tell them it's interesting, they're like, holy cow. Hmm. Tell me, tell me more. That's right. Uh, All right, fellas. I appreciate it. Appreciate you hopping on to do this because it it did feel without a little follow up just on how it went. It was going to feel a little lopsided. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, guys. Good times. All right, Pete. Cheers. Okay, lots of people to thank for today's episode. Uh, First of all, to Kevin D. and Brian Hake from the rock band Copaz for recreating that song for me and doing a couple interviews. As we joked in the interview, Copaz hasn't played together in about 10 years, but they never technically broke up. So fingers crossed that they keep making music. Shout out to my friend Chip Midnight, who connected me up with Colin Gowell. I hope I'm saying your name right, Colin, from the rock band Watershed, who got me their song Leslie Let Me about five minutes after I sent an email. Stick around after the end credits. I'm playing that song in its entirety. It's really good. Finally, thanks to all of you if you stuck around this long. This is the longest episode I've ever done but it's a topic I really love talking about. So I hope you found things in there to like. There's one more final episode from season two of Pete Brown Says coming out in a few weeks time. And I've got plans for some new projects coming up just after that that I'm really excited to share with you. And I'll tell you all about them on that final episode. Once again, if you like the show, leave me a review on iTunes or tell a friend. Pete Brown Says is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown, and is the property of Blue Monkey Communications. This show is written to the best of my memory. At times, names, timelines, and events have been changed, though I will try to let you know when that is happening. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Pete Brown Says, and submit a story of your own or sign up for the newsletter at PeteBrownSays.com. There's also a link there to buy me a cup of coffee if you want to help cover production expenses. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. I'm growing an audience, one listener at a time, and your help is crucial to that effort. Music and sound effects in this episode have been sourced and licensed from the websites audionautics.com, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. The opening music is by Brian Hake, and some interstitials are by Kevin Davison. Their now-defunct band Delicious performs the show's theme song, I'm Not Myself. We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. Until then, and as always... Good times, everyone. Good times.
<laughs> I feel like Shaft should be sitting here eating Doritos. And there should be a fire right here. <laughs> Good times, everybody.